Well, This is the New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we welcome our very special guest, John Prendergast. John is a human rights and anti-corruption activist, as well as a New York Times bestselling author. He is the co-founder, with George Clooney, of The Sentry, an investigative and policy team that follows the dirty money connected to war criminals and transnational war profiteers. John is also the strategic director of the Clooney Foundation for Justice. He has worked for the White House, the State Department, two members of Congress, the National Security Council, UNICEF, the Human Rights Watch, the International Crisis Group, and the U.S. Institute of Peace. Clearly, he is very well credentialed. And what I so appreciated about him being on the show today was not only his willingness to share some of the stories and the journey that he has been on and just be really kind about it, but he is also so passionate and he wants to bring us along with him, which he will do today during our conversation. Here is our very special guest, John Prendergast. So you founded The Century with George Clooney. Can you help us a little bit understand what The Century does? Yes. We, after years and years, decades, I hate to say, of working um, in, in Africa on these, in these war zones with these very complex crises that uh, unfold involving, you know, famine and war crimes and genocide. And there was one recurring constant that took me many, many years to sort of see it as clearly as I see it now. And that was that as the world was pouring billions of dollars into sort of clean up what the horrors that had unfolded, you know, the with humanitarian assistance and development aid and uh, peacekeeping forces and all the rest of it. At the same time as those billions of dollars and euros and pounds are going in, billions of dollars are coming out of these countries stolen, looted by small networks of people, both inside and outside the country, who who had taken advantage of the situation, uh, in fact, exploiting the situation in order to enrich themselves. So the idea that war is profitable. Socrates said it, I don't know how many centuries ago, millennia ago, that all wars are about money. Hmm. And I realized kind of, you know, the force of a tidal wave that we were all the things that I had worked on my entire life. Everyone else I knew, the peace negotiations and uh, the peacekeeping and all the human rights efforts that are undertaken, nothing was addressing that fundamental financial incentive for those that could wreak havoc in those countries to continue to do so. We were not making it any harder for them. We were not creating any consequences for them. And therefore, the status quo was deepening. Um, and so that's, we said, okay, what if we set up an entity that just looks at the money, at who's stealing it, where it's going, tracing it through the international banking system into real estate, into luxury goods, into school fees and faraway countries and all the rest of it that where the money goes and work with banks and with governments to freeze that money and seize it and basically shut the networks, again, they're internal and external people who are 
profiting from these wars, shut those networks out of the international financial system. Help me understand this. So a war happens. Tell me how war, you, you started to say it before, but I really want to understand this. How does war become profitable? Like what, what is the full supply and demand side of how people are making money on this? So in many of the countries we work in, in Africa, almost all of them, yeah, uh, there are massive natural resources in those countries, gold and oil and diamonds and all other kinds of minerals that power our everyday lives. In these countries, you know, it's the, the, the old term resource curse. These countries have these extraordinary resources, but these kind of international vultures <laughs> have, have, have descended on these places and they find local interlocutors and collaborators, usually in the military or very senior people in government. And, and these networks then figure out ways to exploit, Ill usually Ill illegally extract the resources and externalize the profits. So move them out of the country. So basically using uh, the banking system to as the getaway car. It almost corresponds exactly. The people who are most responsible for war crimes, crimes against humanity, people who are most responsible for obstructing peace processes, people who are most responsible for going after journalists and, and other independent voices, people who are responsible for trafficking networks, all the same people are the ones that are looting the natural resources. And so the idea is after their finance, because we can't uh, usually get them through legal measures. The International Criminal Court is very clogged. That's a whole other story. And domestic legal redress does not, because they control the courts uh, usually, uh, that, that is not going to uh, provide a, a venue for accountability and justice. The one point of vulnerability that these people have, these networks have, is the financial system. They have to move their, they mostly deal in US dollars and they have to move their money through the international banking system. And if you find the, the evidence of where they're doing the money laundering and the theft and the corruption and the looting, if you can find that evidence, turn it over to the banks, turn it over to governments, you can stop it. Okay, so you're tracing the money and then you're turning it over to banks and governments. Now, that is then assuming that the banks and governments are going to be you know, fine, upstanding citizens and do the job of stopping this. But the truth is the banks and governments are also culpable in this. Like, is there ever a pushback to that saying like, no, we, we too are actually profiting from this dirty money? They never say it. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> I would love them to say it on the record, ideal. but that's never. <laughs> okay. That's where my partner comes in, you know, having... George Clooney and other folks who have great profile and having linked up with these people for years, we're able to go and see the CEOs of the major global banks around the world. We're able to see presidents and prime ministers. We're able to see financement. We're able to, you know, have access to the key people who can then, and often they don't have any idea that in some country halfway around the world, there's some way that their bank is facilitating this kind of activity. And once they're presented with the evidence, they're like, I don't want that kind of reputational damage to what we're doing. And let's shut it down. It's not profitable enough. Now, I can't say that about some of the things that might be happening with Russian oligarchs. I can't, that is dealing with is African natural resources, being looted from Africa and going through regional and local banks in 
Africa and through the Middle East or Europe or America. Because most of that activity is in U.S. dollars, it actually only requires the United States government, the Treasury Department, and the, the cooperation of those key international banks that are headquartered largely in New York, because they have, through the anti-money laundering capabilities and, and powers and through treaties and through other uh, measures that have been taken principally since 9-11, they are able to, to shut that activity down once the evidence is presented. If you don't have evidence, they're not they, they're going to probably look the other way. But if you have the evidence, then it's really hard. But they don't want it to come out. They don't want it to be, you know, the headline at Citigroup or Chase Manhattan or whichever bank is facilitating the corruption and the war crimes of a, of a dictator somewhere, again, halfway around the world. So that's it's, it's actually a, a model, a formula that we use, sort of tying all of the different pieces together uh, and using the, the well-known folks that we have who could then, if necessary, if people did say what you said or didn't didn't say it out loud, but they did it, we can then go public and make a lot of noise about it. I see. Why is the U.S. dollar the currency that it ends up being moved in? Why not the yen or the euro? So far, it's interesting. You know, even during the last four years, when you had a lot of a lot of uh, blowback as a result of the United States going alone on some of the sanctions regime related to Iran and a few other countries, even with that, the dollar has remained largely, has retained its percentage of the world's commercial transactions. So talking about somewhere between 60 and 70% of global commercial transactions being conducted in US dollars and even a higher percentage in Africa. It's just the currency that's most stable, most reliable. And despite all the predictions of the Chinese currency, the euro and cryptocurrencies being on the verge of replacing it, it's held its ground. Now that doesn't past performance doesn't predict future results, but it's been up till the present. It has retained its place, its predominant place in global uh, commercial activity. So the investigative team and the policy team follows this dirty money. And you said that finally, like through just what must be an unbelievable s- series of investigations, you finally are able to to bring this evidence to the banks and the government. When it's all working well, what do the banks and government then do? Like, At what point does the crime stop? How do the people get confronted about this? How do the war criminals stop being criminals? Let's use an example. So Congo, this country, Democratic Republic of Congo, a country in, in the center of Africa that is one of the richest non-oil natural resource bases in the world. I mean, they just have everything. And because they have everything, they have attracted international uh, uh, exploiters literally for five centuries. A quarter of the human beings that were enslaved in plantations in the American South were from the Congo. And so what the transatlantic slave trade just morphed into various other vehicles for one-way extraction, moving on from human beings to natural resources all the way up to the present, where our phones, our laptops, the cobalt in in car batteries, electric car batteries, Mm -hmm. I could name a hundred products in which Congo factors dramatically. And if it was shut off, it would cause a alteration in the global price of the products. You have this extraordinary phenomenon 
of a place that has been completely and totally captured by networks of people, often criminal networks, that whose sole purpose is to extract resources. And they take with full complicity of government officials. So in this case, the example I'd like to give you, the president of the country, the former president named Joseph Kabila, one of the great looters of the 20th and 21st centuries, as were his predecessors, all the way back to Mobutu and then King Leopold, again, go back, back, back into history. You know, and this guy had a uh, international partner, a diamond dealer named Dan Gertler, who would be given for a very cheap sum, big mining concessions within the Congo. And he'd hold them for a year and then he'd sell them to some of the major mining companies like Glencore for billions of dollars and then spread that money. He'd keep a lot of it, but he'd spread it to the president and then the president's network, especially military. And they used tremendous repression and uh, military uh, force to ensure to keep, retain uh, control of the various minerals, which these kinds of deals were being uh, undertaken. So the violence goes hand in hand with the exploitation and corruption. So we said, well, let's investigate, as did a few other Global Witness, Bloomberg, a few other uh, enterprising anti-corruption kind of uh, activists or, or investigators. And a collection of evidence was compiled against the international facilitator, Dan Gertler. We turned that evidence over to the Treasury Department, and the Treasury Department's number two person after Steve Mnuchin in the in the uh, Trump administration was a woman named Seagal Mandelker, whose grandparents were survivors of the Holocaust. She came in and made a very deep commitment, personal commitment, to ensure that she would use her position in support of human rights. And we we met frequently and provided all kinds of evidence to her about the activities of this particular international money mover and and mining magnate, Dan Gertler. And she, working with the Treasury Department and the White House, imposed sanctions on Gertler, his main business partner, and ultimately 33 of his companies. It shut him down. And this was at a time when the president of the country was about to change the Constitution so that he could run for office again, you know, third term and be president for life, basically. Mm. And he saw what was happening. And we and others made it abundantly clear to him directly, you're next. So he decided, okay, it is not worth it. And he stepped aside. He did not change the Constitution, which would have been an act of war with the opposition. He stepped aside, allowed an election. Now, the election was terrible, but his guy didn't win. He, he, he had so little support, he couldn't pretend that that guy won. And so it's problematic. It's not clean. It didn't go from the DRC to Switzerland overnight. Not to say Switzerland's clean. Right, right. <laughs> but it's a step forward because here's 500 years of history of a country which has been looted, destroyed by outsiders with no accountability. And suddenly there's some form of consequence. And it's significant and serious, and it has an impact right away. It's a step. So this is the idea. If we can address some of the external sources of gasoline that is poured on some of these embers in countries 
embers often created in part by external meddling and and this kind of uh, financial advantage taking. Um, if we can alter that outside dynamic, perhaps we can shift the calculations, the incentive structure somewhat inside those countries so that the leaders start to see, well, if I continue down this path, the consequences may be so great for me that I think we better alter our way of doing business. So it's a step. There are a lot of places where one could insert themselves into this entire cycle, right? So you're really on, like your model is really with looking at following the money and making it basically ending in punity for the people who are taking advantage in in these times of like genocide and war. But there's also another side to this, right? Where we could, tell me if I'm wrong here, but like we could in theory demand that our phones no longer have cobalt in them and therefore the price of cobalt changes and all of a sudden that becomes less valuable. Is that just a losing proposition? <laughs> Does that side of the equation at all have any actual effect on making this better? Very insightful and absolutely has a major role to play. So while all that was going on, yeah. in fact, even preceding the story I just told you, the principal violence, so the deadliest war in the world since World War II has taken place in this same country we're talking about, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And the latest, the phase which is of the sort of over the last 20 years that has been so utterly destructive was in large part fueled by a scramble for the resources that are based in the eastern part of the country that are indeed the minerals that end up as refined into the metals that go into our phones and laptops. And the uh, fighting contestation for the territory accelerated dramatically when the demand for these products in the West began to increase in the late 1990s. So the connection is just abundantly clear. And over time, as young people uh, started to learn about the connection their phones were having with this country and the, the, the minerals that were being mined in this country, we call them three T's and gold. So tin tantalum and tungsten are the three. Cobalt is actually the one that goes in the cars. It's tin, tantalum, and tungsten and gold are the four main minerals. So the three T's and gold. And a movement, almost at around the same time as we saw the Invisible Children movement come about through high schools for the addressing the Lord's Resistance Army issue, you had a, a college student-led movement, the Conflict Minerals uh, movement, focused on conflict-free campuses. <laughs> and they worked to ensure that the uh, administrations of their, of their universities would pledge not to buy phones and laptops from companies that, did, that scored poorly in a ranking. We did mm -hmm. a ranking of these companies and how, they, how much they tried to ensure that their supply chains were conflict-free because the effort began to be made on the ground to say, let's green light the mines that are not being contested by these uh, warring factions. So it, let's incentivize peace, just as the Blood Diamonds movement ended up incentivizing a change in the situations in Sierra Leone and Liberia away from violent exploitation of the diamond mines because they could no longer sell the diamonds from those 
uh, mines into the international system once they were blocked. Similarly, we tried to create a situation where it was the supply and demand that would drive the change on the ground in, in eastern Congo. For years, a fairly substantial youth-led movement, it worked. Apple, the leading consumer yeah. of these minerals, over time changed its policy. It's a long, dramatic story, but Steve Jobs was still alive then, and he went from being a denier of the situation, of their culpability in the situation, to fully embracing Apple as the leader in uh, clean supply chain, uh, in conflict-free supply chains. And Apple, to this day, remains a leader. So the situation has changed rather dramatically with respect to some of these corporate uh, involvements, especially amongst the phone and, and laptop. Uh, the sort of tech industry has really embraced this attempt to try to support conflict-free mining in uh, Eastern Congo. Rather than boycotting it, which would have been devastating to Congolese communities, even in the warped situation that the mining sector is in, was in, they worked to invest in a certification system that sort of shows which mines are still problematic and which mines are, are conflict-free. And that has had a really major impact on uh, the levels of violence in parts of Eastern Congo where those mines existed. So there is often some reluctance, I feel like, by someone to take on an issue that's so massively systemic. Like, like we're all listening to you over the last 25 minutes and wrapping our heads around just a massive, massive, what must be a multi-billion dollar problem and solution. Clearly, that's not your story. Like, there is something in you that has said, I'm going to trudge headfirst into something that is pretty overwhelming. I'm curious how you have found that in you to go be a part of, of that solution. Because it can't be easy, and it's certainly very slow work. You know, having lived in war zones for a long time, for much of like the first half of my adult life, and I saw the burnout rate, you know, of all the folks that were that I were colleagues of mine working in the humanitarian and human rights and peace, anti-trafficking, all the different elements of this sort of international justice and international uh, peace efforts. And the burnout rates are very high because these issues are so hard. It's often so difficult to see progress, you know. And it's personally really, especially if you live in like live in refugee camps, you're seeing death and destruction all the time. And I get a tremendous amount of optimism and sort of future hope by reflecting on some of these youth-led movements that I referred to earlier that have shown that when people care about an issue and they figure out the right way to get involved and they do it in large numbers and they do it with each other. And they could be many movements. You know, I'm sure a lot of people never heard of anything that was going on on Congo. I'm sure a, mm -hmm. a vast majority of the people in America never heard of any of that stuff. But they don't, we don't need it. As long as a group of like-minded people work together, and now the internet has really facilitated this kind of, uh, of uh, movement building, you know, it's like what IJM does. I mean, what you're able, you're able to bring so many people together around the issues that you work on that otherwise would never find each other. And then when legislation has to be passed or when attention needs to be paid to a particular uh, wrong that is, is occurring, injustice that is occurring, millions of eyeballs can be put on that issue. And then action can come because senators and congresspeople start hearing about these things or parliamentarians in other countries. 
and they start hearing from their constituents that this matters to them. Let's do something about it. You know, when the genocide started in Darfur in 2003, you know, this is a place in the middle of the Sahara Desert. Who would even care about it? Who would even know where it is? Nobody knew where that place was. And somehow, some way, slowly but surely, uh, student groups, religious organizations, churches and, and synagogues and mosques all over the United States and around the world, and uh, human rights groups and all kinds of different folks, celebrities had their role in it, started to pay attention to this and started to see, well, millions of people who are being displaced from their homes because of their identity. You know, this idea that genocide could occur in the 21st century, uh, you know, when all these proclamations of, you know, how we're advancing as a civil, as a world, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people started showing up to events uh, and and writing letters to policymakers saying, do something about this. This is at a time when the Sudan government was using food, using the denial of food aid as a weapon. So they used starvation as a weapon of war. And as a result of all these voices telling the, the world, do something about Sudan, they, we had United States and China together pressuring the Sudan government not to use starvation as a weapon. So yes, people were displaced. Things, terrible things happened. But millions of people are alive today, in my opinion, because people took action. And that's not even a clear example of, of where change can occur. The crazy story of Coney 2012, everybody remembers, well, the 10 years before that, high school students were, were organizing around the country, around the United States, they would learn that, in fact, Uganda, northern Uganda, had the highest rate of child abductions in the world. And they were like, well, why is this happening? And they were learning through these little crude videos that they were getting from this organization, Invisible Children, like, Here's the, here are the dynamics. And yeah, the, the videos were flawed, but they were here. The fundamental truth was this, is these kids were being captured and then turned into child soldiers and then attacking their original home villages and being brutalized in the process. And so many crimes were being committed. And because these kids started to act, writing their letters and, and calling Congress people, demanding action, I would walk into an office, a senator's office or a congressperson's, I mean, the president of the United States, and they would say, oh, I heard from my kid about this issue of the Lord's Resistance Army, and we're, we're trying to figure out what to do about it. It was an incredible, and now today, the Lord's Resistance Army has like 150 <laughs> former child soldiers. And the it was 10,000 strong at a tight. It was a complete success story because it translated that concern and that activism into action. So people think, oh, these problems are so far. How could anyone in their right mind think sitting in Illinois or, or South Carolina or, or Nebraska or whatever, that they could make a difference in northern Uganda about some militia kidnapping children. How could they think that? But it worked. So, I mean, to me, that says, okay, if you care about something in the world, whatever it is, go do your research. Take a day, take an hour, take a night and read up. Go on to the internet, find out who's working on it. See what speaks to you. See who, what individuals or what organizations are doing the kind of work that you say, well, you know what? That seems to make a lot of sense to me. I'm going to join this 
I'm going to sign up for their emails. I'm going to start getting their emails and learning what they, and when they want me to take action, I'll take action. If I can send $5, I'll send $5. Whatever I can do, I'm going to try to make a difference as part of a larger group. And then if I'm really moved, I'll set up a little group at my school or amongst my colleagues at work or at my church, wherever my sort of network exists or on my social media. I read a study. Uh, I don't know it was in a Harvard Business Review or something like that. And it was about what are the most important ways that people are moved to get involved in, in, in a cause. And the third most important, if I remember correctly, well, they saw effective ad, you know, they saw an ad and it was like, just, it was so moving. They said, well, I'm going to get involved in this or I'm going to send my money or whatever. The second most uh, cited reason in this study was that a celebrity was involved in it and they learned about what the celebrity was interested in and they got interested. But by far the most cited reason why people got involved in an issue is because a friend or a family member asked them to. And I think about all of the listeners that you have that have various forms of social media. By telling stories through that social media, if it's not your own story, tell someone else's story. I heard that this happened. Listen to this story. And now I got involved. And here's how you can get involved too. Join me. Let's go do it together. Let's get some more people to do it. Using those networks that you have. I mean, it's game changing, to, to put it very succinctly. That is how change happens is we learn as much as we can and then we act and we bring others with us. And I think that's really the thing that gives me hope. And the work that you're doing both with Enough Project as well as The Century like hits on all three of those, right? You are sending out compelling advertising and compelling emails and you are asking people to share on social, but there is also this really interesting influencer connection that you have. I mean, we don't have to go far in any of your work to recognize people that we know, like Ryan Gosling and Reese Witherspoon and George Clooney. I'm curious, besides being just, you know, I'm sure lovely people who are interested in leveraging their lives for the sake of of this work, I'm curious what their level of influence and celebrity adds to this conversation and adds to this work. Well, in the case of, of Clooney, you know, we start traveling together. You know, this is way before I got married and he got married. So we'd go anywhere and we're in the middle of war zones and crazy places. And he didn't care. He was ready to willing to go anywhere. I mean, it just really sacrificed. We would come back. And again, because it's George, we could like, okay, which president should we go see? Let's hold a press conference. And hundreds and hundreds of, of journalists would come to the thing and go up to Capitol Hill, go see five senators or seven senators in the course of three hours and have them all signed up to legislation by the time the day ends. I mean, you know, his ability is very strategic guy, very political guy and willing to be very bipartisan. And I think which is really important on Africa because we just try to keep all politics out of it. Having a strategist like that and then use the media to be able to, to broadcast what's happening in a place to shine a spotlight. Don Cheadle, who I wrote a couple books with, is a dear, dear friend of mine. And he he talks about how, you know, the spotlight is shining on these guys and you take a mirror and you shine the light off of yourself and onto the issue that you want to. And then you keep it on there and you just keep and give the stage to the folks that are being affected by it so that they can then tell their own stories. It always irks me to hear someone say, we have to be the voice of these people because they're voiceless. These people are not voiceless. We're just not listening. So we got to give them a platform 
And we got to amplify their voices. I think that's the role of the celebrity. And the second role the celebrity has, in the, and they're great at it, is recruitment. All the popular movements I've talked about with respect to all these different African causes, and I'm, a, I'm an African guy, my career and my life, so I can speak to other things. But certainly without that's the celebrity voices, I, I'd be hard pressed to see how we would have been able to muster the kind of, of citizen participation and involvement that we've been able to. And I think they're just able to just bring people to a point where they're like, okay, I'll, I'll join you. It's sort of a legitimizer. And hey, is that what we all think should be the way the world is? And maybe not, but it is. And so we'll use the cards that we have dealt to us. You've mentioned this a few times that that you grew up in these war-torn areas or that at least you had formative years. What brought you there? Why why is this your life's work? I mean, there's no reason why it wouldn't be, but this is a unique path for a person to be on. What brought you to this? In my late teens and 2021, I was pretty set on working on trying to disrupt and undermine the school to prison pipeline. So working on in urban policy basically trying to learn what and, and way figure out how I could fit into the policy world and addressing the how do you deal with kids who drop out of the system and then you know nobody helps them until they actually commit a crime and then suddenly millions of dollars are spent to prosecute them and then imprison them for the rest of their lives that was my life I thought was that was what I was going to focus on and then I, I happened to see, pictures of a uh, of the, a famine that was unfolding at, in Ethiopia at the time. This is 1983. It was a, a glimpse into human suffering on a scale that I had just never seen. Again, this is before the internet. I really didn't watch much television, so I was not aware that such things happened in the world. It wasn't in my orbit. And when I saw it, I was like, I was so affected. I, I couldn't get it out of my head, the, the images. And I decided I'm just going to go and see for myself what's happening there, take a little bit of a leave of absence from the work that I was doing and just go see it. I had enough money for a one-way ticket uh, and some change left over. So I was age of 21 and just went. I had a tremendous, I mean, experience. I mean, that's a whole book worth of stuff, but going around, learning, and then finally getting my uncle sent money. I, so I came back. And uh, I tried to go back to work, tried to go back to do And I stayed being a big brother and big in the Big Brother, Big Sister program. Till today, I'm still uh, active in Big Brother, Big Sisters. But I, I decided my career, my vocation was going to be focused on what the U.S. role could be in reducing the intensity of these crises that it seemed the U.S. and other countries were central to causing. <laughs> That's what my life's work has been, is to figure out how we can use the influence we have to be able to hopefully bring about a reduction in suffering and empower the people on the ground in those countries who are peacemakers and human rights activists and anti-corruption activists and anti-trafficking activists and those and uh, ensure that they can have a, a more level playing field so that their work can be more successful. As you look at this timeline of where you started and where you are now, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self about what you're about to enter into and what, what would be helpful to know as you get into a world of you know, geopolitics and like massive economic corruption and just working on the scale that you do? What, what do you wish you had known then that you know now? 
Well, I think the most important thing, I don't know how I got it right hmm. because I had no frame of reference, but I, uh, one of my heroes, and I'm sure many listeners are aware of Brian Stevenson and his work at Equal Justice Initiative. And he, uh, my wife actually works for him, so I'm a biased listener, but I, I was a fan of his before. <laughs> yeah, he's incredible. Yeah. And so he talks about being proximate to the issues and to the people that you say you want to care about, you want to help. So number one is if there are issues and, and people and places in the world you care about, go there and see what's for yourself and be on the ground, be close to people. I think that is so important one way or another. And there's always a way. And it's not easy a lot of the time. It's hard to figure it out, but it, just keep at it. But then before you get there, learn as much as you can. I just went, you know, I was just so innocent, just so full of American hubris, you know, like, oh, well, I just figured if America got involved, we could, most powerful country, well, what I know, we could help solve this, you know? And I didn't study and I didn't understand the culture and the country and what was happening in the places I was going to. At first, I soon quickly realized that that was just a crushing mistake. So I think having the respect for the people and the places and the issues that you are interested in to learn deeply as much as you can and then to go there and be there with those folks and within those places, whatever they are, they could be here in the United States and in difficult situations, or it could be halfway around the world, whatever draws you and whatever much, I think be there, but also understand good intentions are not enough. You have to under, you have to learn the issues inside out, the different perspectives, what has been tried, what hasn't been tried. Understand you're not the first one with these impulses that like wants to help. Many have come before you. So what did you, what can you learn from them? What are the lessons you can have? So that when you go in, you've got your eyes are a little bit wider. You have a little bit more clarity about what might make some sense in the sort of situation that you're walking into. So I think all those things, if I could go back to that 20 year old and say, dude, come on. Get it together. I think I would have uh, would have been really to study it and understand it and respect it and be humble. Just be humble about it because you are not going to change everything overnight yourself. You're part of a much larger thing, a much larger set of forces. And, and understanding those forces and understanding the people that preceded you and what they have experienced and what they have learned is just utterly critical. Thank you for that. And final question. I'm just, I'm aware that people are sitting here listening to you. They have probably been, you know, they ordered Congo stories on Amazon while you were talking. They have been like searching and reading about enough project in the century and their bell is rung, right? Like their heart's racing. Like this is a moment for them to do something. There's a lot of some things to be done over the course of a life, but for the person right now who is just getting off the subway and is trying to figure out what their first step could be, what would you offer them as a meaningful first step in helping uh, with this massive systemic work that you are doing? I'm more interested in people following their own hearts and mm. what they really care about. And so if they're in a position that they could envision a way to go and volunteer or go and work in a place where the issues that they care about or the people that they care about are, the short-term costs always seem so high. Like, oh, <laughs> the financial difficulty. Oh, but uh, my parents think, what about my friends? Uh, I got this great apartment. I don't know, whatever it is. And they're all re good reasons. But 
when you're young, especially for those that are young, but really age doesn't matter. Like I've seen people change things in forties and to fifties and just go and do something crazy and come out like completely different afterwards. So if you can go somewhere and do something that you care about, go do it. And even if it's causes some short-term difficulties, the long-term payoff in terms of development of your, of your sort of understanding of your own self-understanding and, and evolution and what you want to achieve in the world will be astronomical. And by the way, a lot of employers really respect that when they see, oh, this person just up and went and did this, but they'll be like, well, didn't you, what, what, what? And they're like, oh, this person just separated themselves from the pack of resumes I'm sitting looking at. So it's not just that you're going to have your own self-actualization. You might actually become a more attractive person for an employer in the future by taking a risk, by stepping outside of your comforts. But those that can't, for whatever reasons, it might be family reasons, it might be health reasons, whatever. I really think this fundamental lesson that by joining forces with others who care about something you care about. So whatever your thing is that you're, 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 you're most exercised by, you're most upset about, you're most inspired by, go find out which organizations are working on this. Go find out who speaks to you, join it and get involved. Because you can do it from your living room. You can do it from your office cubicle. You can become part of a larger movement and you don't know where it's going to go. So maybe in, a, in six months or a year, there's a, they issue a call to go do something. It might be a week thing. It might be a day thing or something like that. And you go do that and that changes things. So by going into one door that you otherwise hadn't gone into, you find all these other doors. And you're like, oh, I didn't even know those doors existed. And so I think that's really the key is to be able to just to step outside those shoe prints that you are following now, those footprints that you're walking in now, jump out of them and see what impact you can have by doing something a little beyond what you've been doing up till now. So I think that would be the, the advice I give. Well, my deepest thanks to John Prendergast and the work that he is doing, the passion that he brought to this conversation, um, and just the wisdom. I mean, I I hope that I asked questions that you wanted to know as well. There were just things that I did not understand about how genocide happens, how people profiteer off war. And so thank you for following along with me, and thank you so much to John. More on his work is in the show notes. Of course, the conversation that started here will continue on our social media Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of them are New Activist Is, one word, and our website is newactivist.is. As always, thank you to Propaganda, who scored today's episode, his tour dates, music, merch. They're getting back out on the road. I'm excited. All of it can be found at prophiphop.com. Today's show is produced by Christina Gore, hosted and directed by me, with additional editing by Chad Michael Snavely. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of John Prendergast, as well as our colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. Mm-hmm.